So we are in, I call it the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus calls it that in Matthew chapter four. It's referred to as a Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, six, and seven of the gospel of Matthew. And we're right now in chapter six, where Jesus is talking about these virtues, these really good things. Um, But these really good things like praying, giving, and fasting, if they are done for the wrong reason, they're worthless. You might as well not do them, Jesus says. And here's why. Over and over, Jesus says, it's because it's all about looks and not about what you actually are. That you're doing this to be seen. So later on, Jesus will refer to the people that were leading this kind of outward thing. He'll call them whitewashed tombs. Looks good on the outside. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah, but what's on the inside of it? Dead bones. Because it's all about looking like something, but not actually being it. It's all about outward conformity, but there's no inward transformation. And so it's a game. And it can happen so quick where we can be people that concentrate purely on outward stuff, forgetting inward realities. And I saw this once. Um, It was many years ago. It was my second trip to India. And when we're in India, we would go out in very remote areas and we'd share the gospel with people that had never heard the gospel before. So much fun. Like, you don't get that really in America. Everyone has heard of Jesus. But they're, like, literally never heard of Jesus. So it's just an amazing opportunity. So we're in this remote area. We're by the ocean and we're walking along kind of the, the ocean there. And there was this structure that kind of caught my eye. It was it looked like a Roman aqueduct made of stone and like cement. And it actually kind of went out maybe 75, 80 feet into the ocean, kind of like really cool looking wide kind of walkway out there. And I'm like, what is that? And Billy, our guide was like, oh, that's a Hindu God. I'm like, are you serious? Yeah. I said, well, let's go see it. Okay. So a whole group of us, white guys and Indians, and we walk out this little walkway and go out to the end. And at the end of it, there was this maybe two feet diameter kind of round rock thing that was a tunnel, like a well almost that went all the way down. And you could see the ocean below 25, 30 feet down. Like, wow, that's cool. So I sat down on it. And then someone's like, well, where's the Hindu God? Because we're expecting like a little statue of Buddha or something out there, right? And then Billy's like, Matt's sitting on his head. It's like, oh, well, he's comfortable. All right, so while we're out there, this guy comes, and he is old, and he's a fisherman. And the conversation starts. This guy has been coming out to this spot for his whole life, and he had this little paddle. It was about the size of a dinner plate, like a piece of aluminum, and it had this strap on it, and he would slip his hand underneath that strap, and he would paddle out a mile out to this little reef, and he would fish this reef hoping to catch a couple of fish to take back to the market to sell for less than a dollar. And that's what he has done his whole life, seven days a week, day after day after day. And so he had come out there to make a sacrifice to his God, that Hindu God, comes out there, he's like, what in the world? Who are all these white people? Why is that one white guy sitting on my God? I must kill him, right? Well, they start to share the gospel with him. 
And miracle of miracle, right next to his Hindu God, he believes in Jesus Christ. And here's what's amazing. If you've ever had that time to share Jesus with somebody and they believe, sometimes like people's countenance actually changes. Have you ever seen that? Like, I don't wanna say they're glowing, but it's almost like they're glowing. It's like God has grabbed the hold of them in such a way that they have this smile and this joy and this peace that actually shines out of them. That was this guy. It was amazing. Like, heartfelt, amazing. Like, yes! And then this happened. He was wearing this button-down shirt. He would strip down to his skivvies to go out there. He was wearing this button-down shirt with a little pocket. And one of the, he was actually a pastor of a local church there, He reaches into his pocket there and he pulls out one crumpled, hand-rolled cigarette. And I've not been a smoker, but I can guarantee that that guy, after he has swam out for a mile, fished all day, swam back in for a mile, I bet you one of his simple pleasures in life is to come back in and to sit there on that ocean sit there on the beach, watching the waves, and smoke a cigarette. But that guy, talking to him in Tamil, takes that cigarette, crumples it up, and throws it away. And the man's face fell. Went from shining to like, and here's what broke my heart. To that new believer now, Believing in Jesus became synonymous with what? Not smoking cigarettes. It became synonymous, like that was it. So I heard that and I decided, there was a pastor's conference I was teaching. I decided, I'm gonna address this. I'm gonna address this. And I happened to be teaching Romans 14, which is a brilliant chapter. It's about doubtful disputations. Things that like, well, one person says yes, another person says no. There's not exactly chapter and verse on this. What do we do? And the argument of chapter 14 is, you stand before God. You are God's servant. He will judge you. He will talk to you. He will direct you, right? That's the whole argument. It is brilliant, brilliant. This is not on things that you can find chapter and verse for. This is on things like, well, I'm not sure. Hey, talk to God about. So I start this up. I'm reading chapter 14. And I asked this question. I said, okay. And there's 500 pastors in this room. I said, is it okay for a man to have a small glass of wine with his pasta when he takes his wife out? Is that allowed? Unanimously in these 500 pastors, no. It is not allowable for any Christians to drink alcohol. So I said, chapter and verse. Give me a chapter, give me a verse. So they start throwing out some, like Isaiah 5.11. I said, that's not about drinking a glass of wine. That's about getting drunk. No doubt, prohibition in the Bible about drunkenness, 100%. I didn't ask that. I said a glass of wine, small glass of wine over a meal. And then they said, well, wine in the Bible isn't alcoholic. It's grape juice. I said, well, what's interesting about that is Proverbs 23 uses that same word for wine or grape juice for a man that was staring and drinking too much grape juice who becomes like a drunken sailor, falls down, has a bunch of wounds on his head and wakes up hungover. That's some crazy grape juice, right? I don't know about that, okay? So I finally said, okay, how about this one? So I read to them 1 Timothy 
chapter five, verse 23, every 18-year-old's favorite Bible verse, right? No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. That's right there. It's encouraging a believer to drink some wine. They were ready to kill me. So I said, okay, 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 calm down. I said, let's try another one. Is smoking cigarettes sinful? I'm not talking health here. I'm not talking about, I know it. We all know it's unhealthy. I said, is smoking cigarettes sinful? Can you give me chapter and verse? And they're like, absolutely, it is sinful. I said, okay, where? Where in your Bible do you find that? Here's their one argument. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you've got to treat it like a temple. And smoking cigarettes is unhealthy, so you can't smoke. I said, if you want to use that, then you can't do anything unhealthy. You can't eat ice cream. You can't eat bacon. You can't go to McDonald's. You can't sit around. You better be doing CrossFit. You better be healthy, because it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. They got up to kill me at that point, right? The point I'm trying to make to them is look out. When you start making outward markers of what it means to be a Christian, you're doing exactly what Jesus is warning us about here. We're becoming whitewashed tombs. That's what we're doing, okay? And so Jesus is going to try to unpack this and try to take, come on, be careful, be careful. Salvation is not a list of outward stuff that we check off. Salvation is by faith through grace alone. It comes in like a seed planted inside of us, and that faith will lead to faithfulness, no doubt. It will lead to transformation, but you can't put the cart before the horse. You can't crush up a dude's cigarette saying that's what salvation is. No. It's like trying to write a novel without knowing your ABCs. No way. It starts inside and it grows and it transforms us. That if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what you see is God cares much more about what I'm becoming versus what I accomplished, versus my checkoff list. He wants me to be brilliant and righteous because then I will do brilliant and righteous things, second nature naturally, brilliantly, beautiful. And that's what he's saying right here. And so now Jesus has gone through giving and praying, and now he comes to two. They might be a trigger for you, food and finances. Does anyone in here like to be told what you can eat? Right, your two-year-old already rejects it. I'm not eating that, poo, spits it out, right? My daughter, Bella, for some reason, she decided I will not eat anything green. That was it. Didn't matter. If it's green, I, she would not eat it. So finally, I had the, all right, tough love. So I sat with Bella, and I made her eat a piece of lettuce. I said, eat this. No. I said, eat it now. No. Put it in your mouth. So she did. And then she wouldn't swallow it. I said, you will sit at this table until you swallow that lettuce. And to show I was serious, I grabbed a book and sat down. I timed it. 45 minutes we sat there. She has drool just cascading out of the side of her mouth because she will not swallow it, right? We don't like to be told what to eat. Do you like it when churches tell you how to spend your money? Anyone like that? 
Because if you do, let's meet tomorrow morning. I'd like to talk with you. All right, so that's what Jesus is going to hit on, all right? So let's jump in. Verse 19, 16, excuse me. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus has gone through the big three. Giving, how I relate to other people. Praying, how I relate to God. And fasting for myself, how it changes me. And Jesus is gonna talk about fasting. We did this actually 10 months ago, so I'm gonna do fasting fast. And it's become popular, right? Isn't fasting popular now? You talk to people and they're like, I'm an intermittent faster. Well, that's great. Good for you. I'm an alternate day faster. Have you heard of that? You eat one day, you don't eat the next day. You eat one day, you don't eat the next day. There's people that are, it's called five and two fasting. You eat on the weekdays and then you don't eat on the weekend. I'm like, that'll make a very angry weekend. Why don't you change it? Like eat on the weekend, right? And then there's the six and one faster. You Sabbath one day, you eat for six days and you take one day off. I'm a seven and O oh faster. That's what I do. So personally. Now, if you're fasting for health reasons, great. No problem. Do it. Talk about it. No big deal. 100%. No problem with that. If you're fasting and you do it so you think clearly, great. You're fasting to make your pants fit. Perfect. <laughs> Jesus isn't talking about that. Jesus is addressing the one wrong way to fast, and it's fasting to make people believe you're more spiritual, to be seen. But these guys would fast and they would suck in their cheeks and they wear their just junkiest clothes and they'd just be angry. They'd be like Minnesota Viking fans right now. <laughs> How can we lose every game? They do it to me every year, right? It'd be like that, just all the time, just uh, pent up, angry, venting, uh. If you do it that way, Jesus says, no reward. But if you fast in secret, not letting anybody know, Jesus says this, what a brilliant promise. And your father who sees in secret will, not might, not could, will reward you. So what is the reward from the father for fasting in secret? There's a bunch in the Bible. I'll give you three real quick ones. Number one, to bring guidance. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there's a king named Jehoshaphat. He's got a massive army that's coming against him, wants to destroy him. They're taunting him. Hey, it's 10 to 1 odds. We're going to wipe you off the map. And so the army of Jehoshaphat's coming to him and saying, what are we going to do? We're getting destroyed here. Do we send out, like, do you have a plan? And what is Jehoshaphat's reply? 
He prays this, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And the whole city fasts and prays. And God gives Jehoshaphat the answer. And so his generals are like, what are we gonna do? Navy? No. Army? No. Archers? No. Cavalry? No. Who? Send out the worship team. And they're like, are you serious? Yep. Top hat, baton, twirling, whole thing. Tuba, go. And you know the story. Praise actually so confounds the enemy, they take off. That answer came by prayer and fasting. You have in Acts chapter 13, verse two, the church is fasting and praying and God's spirit speaks, separate for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have. And Paul and Barnabas are shipped out on the first missionary journey and the rest of church history has begun right there because they fasted and prayed. You want guidance right now? Maybe take a day and in secret, fast because it can bring guidance. It can bring protection. Ezra is tasked with leading a group of families across 800 miles of really dangerous desert to get back to the promised land. And he's worried. We can get mugged, we can be killed, we can be slaughtered. And so the whole group, they pray and fast for God's protection on this next journey. And then lastly, maybe the most popular one, break bondage. Read Isaiah 58, especially verse six. That sometimes sin owns us in some way. And the Bible seems to indicate that when I say no to my fleshly appetite of food, that there's a strength that actually gets given to me in another area where I need to say no to. An addiction, pornography, temper, whatever it is, some area that's owning me over here, that fasting, just saying, I'm gonna fast, I'm gonna pray to break the bondage that this thing has on me right now. That can happen for you. So it happens when we fast in secret, not bragging, not to be seen, not to demonstrate that we're something that we're not. That's it, it's brilliant. You get the reward of the heavenly Father. It's brilliant. Now I did that 10 months ago, you can pick it up. Um, we looked at it in the uh, form series. So number two, finances. Look at verse 19. Do not, you might underline that. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in your, you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus goes through the big three of giving, praying, and fasting. 
spiritual life. Now he talks about money, which is our public life. That's how we're perceived by the public. And he gives three warnings on money. Warning number one, beware of getting owned. Beware of getting owned. Let me read verse 19 again. Do not lay up treasures, lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. What does that mean? It means do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. All right, so everyone needs to empty out their 401ks and their Roth IRAs, and they need to give all that money to Edgewater. That's what needs to happen. <laughs> Next. Whenever I talk about, like, especially retirement, I always get hammered. I just get these emails from people. You don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. How? Oh, you're nuts. Okay, whatever. I don't care, right? I've said this a million times. If, when, when, I'm done here when my mind is gone and I can't think right and all that, which is happening quicker and quicker, so it's coming. If I have to go be a greeter at Walmart to make ends meet, I got no problem with that. I will be the best greeter Walmart has ever seen. I'll have a great time. I got no problem with that. This crazy thing, right? Here's what I think. In America, we have made idols of comfort, ease, and safety. And if you threaten one of those idols, look out. And retirement comes in on this kind of whole idea. Right? What is one of the ways that we save up for the future? What's it called? A trust fund. I've always, a trust fund. What is that fund? It's my trust fund. Ah, that's because we trust in that, don't we? So here's what informed me. And it happened a long time ago. I'm 20 years old at Oregon State University. And part of like the education thing they want for everyone is to, hey, know about how to live life, Right? And so I'm sitting in this class as a 20-year-old, and they're telling me, you got to start preparing for retirement now. And I remember I just sat there and I said, no. I am not going to live the next 50 years of my life worried about the last 10. I'm not doing that. Whatever that system is, I'm not living that way. And I never have. I'm not doing it. You can call me crazy. I haven't been dumb. No doubt I'm saving. No, but I'm not going to be dominated by this idea, man, you better save. Look out. Just not going to do it. Now, yes, be smart. Yeah, all like, right? Try to get the big message of what I'm trying to say. Because here's the thing. The fear is this. You will not have enough money when you retire. Let me tell you something. You will not have enough money when you retire. Right? It's never going to be enough money. That's just the way it is. And the one group of people that make a lot of money off that fear, the people doing your Roth IRAs and your 401ks. That's who makes a lot of money off that fear. So I'm just not going to play that, okay? You can plan and be smart, no doubt, but keep it in perspective. And here's what, to me, is my beef with it all. Like, the number one killer of old people is not, man, they didn't have enough money in their trust IRA and their trust fund and their 401k. They didn't have, there's, I've never heard of somebody dying from that. You know what's killing our elderly right now? Depression. Suicides going through the roof right now in the older generation. Loneliness. Lonely people. Do you know that loneliness is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes every single day on your health? That Genesis 2 is as true today as it's ever been. 
it is not good for man to dwell alone. So we get all this money about, hey, save up for retirement and then just go die because you didn't do life right. I think the right college course should be right now for America. Hey, learn how to make friends. Learn how to create community. Learn how to be that because that's what's going to carry you through. That's what you need a lot more than a big giant trust fund. So there's my beef with it, okay? Now, does that mean Christians can't save up any money? Does that mean Christians can't do any of those things? No, of course not. Proverbs 6, 6, a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children. How do you leave an inheritance for your children? You gotta have something saved, right? It's not about, hey, you gotta be poor. In Job 42, Job is called the most righteous man on earth. When God repays Job in chapter 42, verse 12, he gives him double of everything he had before. He's got 14,000 sheep. He was the Elon Musk of Ur of the Chaldees, okay? He had cash money. That's not the thing. Jesus is not prohibiting having stuff. He's prohibiting loving stuff. Money is not the problem. What's the problem? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That when we make treasure, when we make it, we gotta have treasure. We got to look out, you'll be disappointed. A moth will come and eat it. Rust will destroy it. I have a Volkswagen bus. Rust destroys that treasure. Thieves will steal their stuff, right? It's temporary. Yes, be wise. Yes, be smart. But listen, you can be really wise and really smart and save really well and still go broke. It happens all the time. So be careful. As Americans, I think we need to step back and we need to say, have I made an idol in my life of ease and comfort and safety? Right? The trigger of, this is just not a safe space for me. What does that mean? Was the cross a safe space for Jesus? You know, Father, I just can't do this. This just isn't a safe space. The cross just, it, it's just ridiculous. There's no guarantee of a safe space. I think you miss out on adventure and fun and all the, when, when we serve the idols of comfort and ease and safety, you miss out on life. That's what I think happens to you, okay? This is not an indictment on rich people. Poor people can be more obsessed with money than rich people. You know that? Because you never had it, so you want it. So I grew up poor and I was obsessed with being rich. And I've mentioned this before. I have this book. It's The Seniors of Grants Pass High School, 1990. And it, we were given this questionnaire, fill out this questionnaire. What are you going to do after college? Those kind of questions. One of the questions was, where do you see yourself in five years? And there was these brilliant answers. I'm going to be working for an NGO in a third world country. I'm going to be in the Peace Corps. You know what mine was? I am going to be rich, period. <laughs> Lambos and lifestyles of the rich and famous. Why? Because I had no money. And I'm like, I'm not going to grow up. So it's not an indictment on rich, it's an attitude. So what do we do? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures. What do we do? Do we get rid of everything? Do we go minimalist? Remember what the problem is. It's being seen. It's image. You can be a minimalist for the same reasons that people are rich, to be seen, Right? Look at me, I'm a minimalist. Look at me, I live in a van down by the river. I got nothing. Look at me, right? You can be just as crazy and nutty with minimalism, right? It's just as trendy, is it not? It's just a new love. Remember Marie Kondo? Remember her? 
Right? She's the guy that's like, she's the gal that's like, get rid of all your stuff and be really tidy. Remember that? You get one drawer of clothes, you get two pairs of shoes, you need to fit everything in a six by six inch box, and you can only keep 30 books. When she said that, I said, You're a heretic. I'm keeping more books than that. That's insanity, right? So she was all about tidy. Guess what she is now? Here's this article on her. She's given up. You know why? She had kids. How good is that? Ah, forget it. You can't be tidy with toddlers. Mission every mom should be like, amen. She finally learned, right? And we gotta be careful. It's not about being seen. It's not about image. You can do that with a million ways. One of them is with money, no doubt. And here's the warning. This is a warning you can sit on a Monday morning with a cup of coffee and just think about. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about that. We've reversed it, right? We do the cat poster thing. Like, where, whatever my heart desires, that's what I'm gonna put all my life into. Jesus says, that's not how the human heart works, actually. The human heart works, whatever we are treasuring, that's the gravity that draws our heart towards it. It's the opposite of what we believe, but it's the truth that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We get possessed very quickly by our possessions. We get whatever our heart is going to, whatever we're thinking about, whatever we're undergoing, whatever idea or dream we have, man, it begins to draw our heart and our desires after it. What keeps you up at night? What when you're talking to your spouse and you kind of know what she's gonna say, so you can kind of outsource your brain for a second, where does it go in that moment? Where you've been putting your treasure. When your kids are talking about their day at school, you know it's just a replay of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, so you're like, okay, I can drift. Where does it drift? What you've been putting your treasure into. Because our hearts follow where we've been putting our talent and our treasure and our time. A new toy, a new business, a new, I'm gonna rig the gig economy, I'm gonna make it this time. That It draws our heart after it. So when you read this, you should sit and think, I need to sit and think, what have I been treasuring? Because that's where my heart's going. That's gonna take me. It has a gravity. It'll suck me into its vortex. What have I been treasuring? Be careful what we treasure. It takes our heart. You'll get owned by it. Warning number two. Jesus goes from an investment banker to an optim, what is it? Optometrist. An eye doctor, right, has this crazy saying, and here's what he's saying. Wherever you look, you'll lean. You'll lean to what you're looking at. So check this out, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is darkness, how great is the darkness. Look where you're going because you'll go where you're looking. That's what Jesus is saying. So there's um, this thing in motorcycle riding. It's called target fixation. And they warn you about this. 
If you've ever taken a motorcycle course, ever watched something online, they tell you this. You'll start turning a corner if you target fixate. If you look at a, whatever, a house or a tree or a car, guess what happens? That's what you hit, target fixation, right? The only good news about that is you only do it once. That's it, it's over. Jesus is saying this, you will target fixate. Where you look, you'll go. And the metaphor he uses here of the evil eye, the metaphor is this, it's a person who is stingy. It's a person who looks at the world like this, I'm gonna get mine. It's a dog eat dog world and I'm gonna do whatever I need to do to make sure I am top dog. That's the evil eye. When you do that, it warps the way you look at the world. People are no longer image bearers worthy of dignity and respect. People are opportunities. People are dollar signs. People are get influence. People are ways to get prestige. You wanna get something from them. Everything is about getting something. They're no longer just worthy of dignity and respect because of who they are. It's I'm looking at them as a way to get ahead, as a way to serve me, make me money. That's what people become. And so Jesus has this warning. When you do that, he goes, your whole body becomes full of darkness. You get dark. It drives you then. At first, it's you use money, use people for money, and then after a while, when you get rich, you use people for a lot of other things, dark things, because you're consumed by it. And you don't have to read very many biographies of rich people to see how dark they end up getting because of this view of the world. And Jesus here, in his warning, makes a direct line between how I steward my money and my spiritual health. Makes a direct line between how I steward my money and my physical health. Makes a direct line between how I steward my money and my mental health. It's a warning. Look out. Do you know that because of wealth, Americans have all these diseases? Just Google first world diseases. Third world countries don't have them because they don't have money. Cancer, diabetes, heart disease, all because we have wealth. Did you know this? There's a direct correlation between how much money you make and the likelihood you will commit suicide or get divorced. The more you make, the more likely you'll commit suicide or get divorced because the whole body becomes dark. Here's what Jesus is saying. As believers, what have we fixed our eyes upon? What's in our eye? The Bible says, Colossians 3, we're supposed to set our affections on things above. We're supposed to live with a true north that governs the way that we look at money and look at people. And when we stop doing that, oh, it's dangerous, it gets dark. What is your eye fixed on? Be careful, be careful. And then the last one, Jesus says, you've got to serve somebody. Bob Dylan was right. I can sing it for you if you want me to. You won't want me to after I sing it, but I can start it. So here's what he says. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
I always marvel at the comparison. Jesus doesn't say, you cannot serve God in sex. You cannot serve God in power. You cannot serve God in your reputation. You cannot serve God in uh, athletic ability. You cannot serve God in your spouse, right? It's God in money. Why? Because those other things fade with time. Athletic ability, it fades with time. The beavers aren't coming after me, even though I've got four years of eligibility left. Come on. We all know it, it fades. Money never fades. Myron, my 10-year-old, wants a credit card. I have sat with people that have been given a one-year life to live, and they're talking to me about finances. I'm like, bro, it doesn't matter. You're going home. Don't worry about it. Money has this power. No matter how old or young we are, it has a power. And Jesus says this, you cannot serve God and money. Not as hard or as difficult. He says you cannot. It's an impossibility. You can't serve them both. Do you know that you'll serve your stuff? I'll try to give you an example that maybe most of us know. Remember your first car. I remember my first car. 1974 Mustang II. Possibly the worst automobile ever made. It was right after the Mach 3, which is a brilliant, beautiful powerhouse. All of a sudden, oil embargo. So Ford decides, we got to make a cheap car that can get good gas mileage. Mustang too, right? They didn't accomplish either of it. So it was primer black. So if you rubbed up against it, you ended up primer black. It was that color, right? And then because of this crazy thing they were trying to do to make better gas mileage, it would vapor lock. Like all the time, I'd just be driving along. And for like... A second, vapor lock, and then gigantic backfire. People would be jumping in ditches, like, ah, boom, like, and it was just, I just got so used to it, I like, didn't even notice, like, bang, bang, just, it was insane, right? You know what I never worried about? My $150 Mustang too. never. You know what I never parked 75 spaces out at Walmart? My Mustang too for $150. I parked it wherever I wanted. In fact, I would park people to come back to their car and drive out to another parking spot. That's what would happen, right? I didn't worry about door dings. I never checked it for door dings. Guess what I own now? A 1966 Volkswagen Boss. Iconic, beautiful. Perhaps the greatest automobile ever made. <laughs> you know what I do not park in Walmart? My Volkswagen bus, I park it up here and walk to Walmart. Why? Because I treasure it. <laughs> Jesus is totally telling us the truth. Look out. You can start serving your stuff. It isn't, you're possessed by it. Be careful. It's a warning. So what do we do? What do you do about all this? How do we control its power? Here's how I do. I tithe. And we can talk about whether you have to tithe or you don't have to tithe. I don't care about that. I'm a grace guy. Yeah. You can talk about Ned or gross or all these kind of distractions. I tithe for one simple reason. It's the antidote to money. It's once a month. I sit down. I write out a check. You know why? Because I want to think about it. I want to think about writing out this check. I want to think about this has no hold on me. This is not life. 
John 17, three is life. To know Jesus and the Father, that's life. I just steward this. That's all I'm doing with it right now. I don't tithe to try to get something from God, to whack the God pinata so he'll drop me three wishes. That's not why I'm tithing. I'm not tithing to get a blessing from God. I'm tithing because I have been blessed and I wanna bless somebody else. And every month, it's just this good reminder, okay? Okay. And if you're young, don't think, oh, when I get old, I'll start giving. No, you won't. You'll turn 40, you'll get married, you'll have some kids, they'll become teenagers, and teenagers are financial ruin. That's what they are. You're just an ATM, like you just hand out 20s now. Then they go to college and you're bankrupt, right? You gotta start it young. I started tithing when I was 10 years old with a paper route where my mom just said, you know what you should do? You should tithe. I said, okay. It was like 40 cents. (laughs) It's just a habit I've had. It's a way for me to say monthly, this is not life. This won't own me. This is just a tool to use. That's all it is. To bless people, blesses me. I wanna be a blessing with it. I wanna make sure it doesn't rot my soul because it will. I've seen too many rich people that are rotted by it. That's what I do.